Hi everyone, this is Takato Shishibayama, the host of the Future Design Podcast. This podcast looks to empower listeners with perspectives on how we can challenge the social norm and evolve with better understanding of philosophy, spirituality, and ethics. Empowered individuals can have much stronger voice and influence in bringing about revolutionary changes in the world, whether you're building businesses or technologies. My guests and I speak about social constructs that are commonly accepted in the world today that's not working anymore, and how to rebuild them with ethical values to create a better future. In this episode, I speak with Mark Ryle, who is an independent researcher of gene editing and an author of the book Age Decoded. For centuries, we have been pushing the boundaries of life extension by inventing medicine and improving medical practices, which I'm all for, especially in this time of pandemic of COVID-19. If a disease can be cured and minimize human suffering, I welcome it with open arms. But what if that extends to eternal life? Is really aging a disease or a malfunction of our genes, or are we supposed to die? So many have dreamed of infinite life, but I wonder if it is worth it. We discuss about the technologies of CRISPR and what can potentially happen to us human beings if we drink from this fountain of youth. So without further ado, here is Mark Ryle. Future Design Podcast. Thank you very much for being on the show. Welcome to the Future Design Podcast. Thank you, Taka. I'm really looking forward to this, and I'm humbled to be on your show. Yeah, it's the pleasure is all mine. Uh, so you wrote a book called Age Decoded, uh, which talks about CRISPR and how the world. Well, it's more of a scientific novel, science fiction novel, where you created a world where people live two hundred, three hundred years, and you talk about people living in that world, which I find it really interesting. And before we dive into those CRISPR and and Gene editing topics and how we create a world around that. Could you tell us who is Mike Ryle? Sure. I'm uh, well. I just retired from uh, um, 25 years of teaching, so I love teaching. I love working with uh, young people. Uh, I taught economics actually, uh, and I also uh, love coaching. Um, my main coaching area was uh, cross country running, uh, which is pretty tough sport for a lot of kids, and uh, we. Um, we tried to build up a lot of sort of team aspect to it and trying to uh, make sure every runner felt important. And uh, it was a real team thing, not just running the race on your own. So that was sort of my um, sort of my background. I, I, this is my first book. I'm not really, uh, I don't consider myself a writer. I guess I am now. Um, uh, and with teaching, I, I guess I sort of got into more spiritual more artistic things in my later uh, career. And I, I also started doing some art and, um, but uh, I wrote this book uh, about 10 years ago and it's now being published. Uh, I have a second book I'm working on now too. So I guess I have an artistic side to me that's been uh, sort of clawing to come out. And, uh, and so uh, hence this uh, novel, yes. Right. Well, Definitely, you're more than artistic because you dove into this technology called CRISPR or gene editing and s discovering how people can extend their lives. And I've tried to pick up this topic quite a lot, but it was very difficult for me to find the right person to talk to. In a way, because you wrote a sci-fi novel, it makes it much easier for the layman to read it. And I found it very easy to kind of go through the pages and, and, and read it. So for the listeners, could you... Give us a short synopsis of the book uh, so that we can kind of understand uh, what you wrote about. Yeah, so the book, um, 
looks at two parts of genetic engineering. I mean, there's so many things that could be impacted by this, but I took uh, one psychological trait and one physical trait just to really give people an idea of what could happen. And my characters were grappling with the effects throughout the novel. So one, the, the psychological thing uh, that I felt was impacted was people's um, ability to criticize. Uh, that, that happened to them without them knowing it. So that's sort of like the corruption thing that you know gives the novel a twist. Every novel needs a, a good corrupt story, right? So um, they, their brains were affected using genetic engineering so that they could not criticize as effectively, criticize the government or, or anything as effectively. They didn't know that. The second thing that um, they did know about and they all went for was a physical effect which is um, using genetic engineering to stop um, stop aging and even reverse it. Uh, so all of this stuff goes out about 200 years, 230 years in the novel. And uh, these things I actually believe could be possible um, uh, given enough time and given the research that's even going on right now, they're, they're looking into these things. So those that's what the novel does and I, I think um, uh, you know, I can quote a few characters maybe later later on, but it's the the nice thing about science fiction is um, you can really get a feeling through the characters um, what the impacts are. Uh, it's, rather than nonfiction, you just read about the science. Here, you get to feel and imagine what people uh, what they might think could happen, why they might go for things, and then why they might uh, have some caution about some things, and why they might even regret. Um, some things that have, have gone on. So, yeah. <clears throat> and by profession, you were never a scientific researcher at all, and, but you made a lot of effort. No, I, to... um, well, actually I, I was, I did do a, yeah, interesting. I did do a science degree, uh, but my PhD is not in, I'm not a genetic, uh, I'm not a genomicist or a genetic engineering scientist. Uh, my PhD is in education. And I have a master's in business, so I'm sort of an eclectic uh, person in terms of background. But um, I started studying this about 10 years ago, reading uh, just like you, reading what I can and, and picking up what I can from various articles. And so much has come out that like every day I'm discovering new things uh, that uh, are on the frontier of this uh, frontier, even right now happening of this science. So, um, you know, I, th I think um, I think it's my goal is just to teach people like I've learned myself it's because I do think it's going to be a tsunami of uh, this is a huge, huge um, uh, break with history. Uh, if I could just slow down a bit. Um, so far in human history, what we have done is we have become pretty good at nurturing each other, uh, not not changing human nature, but just nurturing humans. And uh, that's good, you know, improved medicine, life expectancy, education systems, social services, um, exercise, diet, um, nutrition, all of those things have improved immensely. And uh, we've made some mistakes along the way, but we've done a pretty good job of nurturing other humans. But this is going to be a break with history. This is literally going to be changing human nature. And that's a, to me, that's an immense step into the unknown. Um, we are going to change the very essence of what it means to be a human being. The research that you've done on a topic, could you go a little bit more in detail on what you discovered? We'd like to know a little bit more about the science behind this CRISPR and gene editing. 
Um, there are there are a lot of exciting developments going on with CRISPR. CRISPR is the current technology, the leading technology, but this could change. In 20 years, there might be something completely different that comes over. But CRISPR will allow uh, scientists uh, or doctors or whatnot um, to uh, change the DNA uh, code to edit it, to change it perhaps uh, permanently, but also uh, I'm just finding out about CRISPR... Uh, they call it CRISPR on and CRISPR off, which will enable scientists to temporarily change your DNA uh, and then flip it back if they don't like the consequences. So uh, it's it's the the um, the science is going to is still emerging. Uh, there's even now I'm reading about anti-CRISPR, which will protect people against. CRISPR in case the uh, maybe there's a bioterrorism thing somebody uses CRISPR to create a virus you know hundred times worse than COVID uh, you would use the um, anti-CRISPR to um, protect all human beings from that virus so like there are so many things going on and the impacts can be you could classify them as um, uh, in various ways, but there's uh, there's one author here in Canada she's she's a her name is Francois Badis from Halifax, uh, Dalhousie University. She just published a book called um, Altered Inheritance, and she does a pretty good job of sort of delineating the different effects, but one is um, definitely uh, prevention of disease. I mean, there's huge possibilities with um, cystic fibrosis, Alzheimer's disease, um, sickle cell anemia, blindness, HIV, um, Huntington's, all of those are horrible afflictions and they do believe they, they'll be able to use CRISPR. Actually, they've already started with sickle cell uh, to uh, and with blindness. They've started that where they literally start changing your genetic code to try to um, treat. So that's treatment. And I think ethically, most people wouldn't have too much problem with that as an application. So Francois Bellis talks about you know the treatment side, not too ethically immoral or potentially immoral. Uh, but then there's also the um, uh, enhancement. So um, there's the possibility uh, that just like athletes use steroids right now, the, that athletes and others, and this is just one example where um, they might use um, genetic engineering to make themselves stronger, faster, or taller. Um, it's quite possible. Uh, and then you could even have designer babies uh, where um, parents are using CRISPR genetic engineering and, uh, or genetic selection to choose um, offspring of, uh, with certain characteristics, including things like intelligence, creativity. I mean, the, there's a whole gamut of things, physical and, and psychological. So that gets into a little bit of questionable territory where, where people are saying, yeah, hold on, I, should we really be doing that? Uh, you know, is that good use of uh, public resources and science? Um, and should we be favoring certain characteristics over others? And also, who will have access to that? Probably more the wealthy people who can get who can pay for it right off the bat. Um, and then the third stage, and the most troublesome one, is the one that I mentioned before, where you have um, unscrupulous um, human beings who could potentially use CRISPR um, for um, you know, uh, evil or uh, really unwanted reasons such, I, I mentioned bioterrorism, that would probably be the worst uh, case scenario. Who are usually on this research that are considering the ethical values of what we're doing? Because the 
even in your book, you know, there was a scientist that was working on, you know, creating this uh, life extension uh, program. And in the end, you know, her work has been taken away from her and into the hands of politicians and et cetera. And, you know, the ethical, she was struggling with all the ethical consequences of what she's doing. And then, so are there anybody on these teams that are actually developing these things, con thinking about these ethical values? And actually, who is to say that that person or the group of people are actually, you know, the referees, so to say, of the ethical value of consideration? Right. Going back going back to Francois Balis, and there's also another person, uh, Jody Halpern from uh, UC Berkeley, I'd recommend to listeners. And, uh, she's got an ethical team set up at that university. But back to Francois Balis, her book, uh, in, uh, Altered Inheritance, she talks a lot about the uh, committees and um, commissions and um, that are set up. So, for example, um, there's a, uh, there was a um, committee that uh, it was really a summit in 2015 in Washington of all the, a lot of the world leaders in genetics who came together and they issued a declaration saying, uh, you know, like if we're going to do this stuff, it's got to be safe, it's got to be effective. And also a really important thing they threw in there, it has to have a, like a broad consensus and not just scientists, not just politicians, but business people, common citizens, uh, doctors, you know, right, a broad consensus. So that's one example. The, um, do you even go, going right back to the, um, the Hippocratic Oath, um, 3000 BC, um, the, uh, it stated that you know, if you're going to do medicine, you, you make sure it hurt, doesn't hurt people, make sure it helps people. Uh, and, uh, but then going past World War II, we had the, um, uh, there was a, there was a, uh, the Nuremberg Code, uh, which talked about the treatment of humans. Uh, and then more recently there, there's a UN commission that's set up uh, to deal with this. And they also even had a, um, a committee on the, uh, uh, it's a long-winded name, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it's something on the biological use of the human germ, germline editing. And it took place just a, two or three years ago, and it had all the leaders from the academies of science, the United States, UK, and others on, and they also, uh, similar to that summit I mentioned, um, talked about having a consensus. But um, Taka, I have to be honest, um, this is a little bit like trying to, again, get the athletes to not take steroids. You can try, but, um, the, you know, this is not, it's not a world government and nobody necessarily has to listen to these committees and commissions and their declarations. Um, it's a little bit like compared to com controlling nuclear technology, you know, the world has tried and we've done a pretty good job, but it's, you know, it's there's still nuclear weapons out there and there's still nations that have never signed the uh, non-proliferation treaties and there's um, nine nations I believe that have nuclear weapons and um, this is this is the next technology and it needs it's going to need to be controlled it's not going to be easy though I, I don't see it uh, as being totally controllable so yeah like all technologies you know it's really up to the humans to decide how they want to treat this. And of course, you can have ethical board councils talking about it, but at the same time, there are no enforcements of it. There's no penalties for doing the wrong thing. And obviously there's going to be a lot of, or potentially countries that, or governments that are 
you know, looking to use this technology to better their society uh, in a right way and maybe in a wrong way as well. And when we kind of unleash this kind of powerful technology into this world, you know, what I really am concerned about first and foremost is not about how they're going to use it but taking a step back and thinking why we're actually needing this to begin with i understand the disease part you know even even our vaccines that we're getting for this covid19 is slightly modifying our dna such that we don't get this covid affected into our bodies but that's okay on the disease side but if you want to start enhancing yourself there's no boundaries, right? Be- because you can push this forward and forward as much as you want. I mean, you know, it, throughout history, I mean, you know, even thinking about, let's say, uh, abortion for that sense. I mean, that that was some, something that was considered uh, unethical a long time ago. And then we kind of pushed the boundaries that, well, women have rights to decide whether they want to have babies or not. You know, we pushed that boundary. You know, you could justify anything in order to enhance yourself or say that I have a right to do X. So, you know, where where do we actually kind of really roll back, roll that back and say, is this really good or bad? I mean, it's just, it, it, it's so fuzzy that I can't see us as humans not being able to justify what, what we want to do. And I see this over and over again with many other things. It's not, it's not about technology, it's about everything. Yeah, well, no, I agree, it's fuzzy. It's exciting, though. I mean, I really do think there will be a lot of huge, huge benefits and breakthroughs with this. I can just give you one example. Again, that you could say we're sort of playing with nature here, and we are, but they just released uh, some mosquitoes in the Florida Keys, and uh, these they're genetically modified, and they're supposed to be... Uh, they just released them like this week, I think, after much environmental assessment and whatnot, and testing in Brazil. But now they're released in the Florida Keys, and they're... Um, it's a private corporation uh, with uh, assistance from research from the universities. But um, these mosquitoes will, um, through generations, wipe out the other mosquitoes that are causing uh, um, disease. Not malaria, but several other uh, diseases in that area. It's, it's, a, it's an invasive mosquito, and it's going to theoretically eradicate that um, disease-causing um, mosquito. So it's not just human beings. They'll be using this to uh, influence uh, other living creatures. Uh, maybe another interesting example is reading that in with the coral reefs. You know, a lot of people are quite worried about us losing the coral reefs with uh, global warming and the effect of temperature on coral. And they believe that they can genetically modify coral and uh, do another one. Of, they're called gene drives when they do this with the mosquitoes or with coral. They could gene drive a new type of coral that's more temperature uh, resistant and save the coral reef. Actually, in Singapore, uh, they also released that type of mosquito as well. Uh, we have in Singapore quite, quite a lot of cases and very frequently dengue um, is pretty widespread. So the government released these mosquitoes so that it doesn't carry this disease around and people getting affected. So obviously we are trying to modify nature around us so that it suits us. And that's the scary part of things is that, you know, nature does what it's supposed to do. You know, it's it doesn't have any purpose. It doesn't have any, um, you know, agenda over any anything. And it should be left as it is, in my view. But because we want to be the superior 
sentient beings of this world that we allow ourselves to modify nature around us. So what's to say that we're not going to modify ourselves so that we continue being this superior sentient being? And what are the consequences of doing that, right? And then I guess this can follow right into your book and probably why you wrote this book to begin with. It's like, how, how do human beings change when they start to be able to bypass the laws of nature and become the superior beings? Yeah, and it was really neat because once I started thinking about aging, as a, some people think of it as a disease, I don't think of it that way, but many researchers do, and, and taking that one variable, which is so alluring, the idea that, okay, I'm not going to grow any older, maybe I can even grow younger, you know, and, and, and if you offered to that people, as you know in my book, I offered it to, for free, and it's only about a 30-minute procedure, so it's publicly available. And, uh, you know, a lot of people go for it. And uh, I think a lot of your listeners uh, would would think hard about it, but might go for it. It's so enticing as a human being. Cause, you know, and I'm like, my parents right now are, are older in their mid-80s. And they're, uh, my father's got cancer and my mother is dealing with her health issues too. But, I mean, there's, thank God they're still alive. And it's tough. And, and if you offered to them, you know, hey, you can start getting younger. You can start moving back to your 60s, 50s, 40s. They might go for it. I mean, why not? We, you know, so it's so alluring. But, you know, they're, they're in one, as you know, one of my characters in my book is a pretty thoughtful uh, Buddhist-like fellow named Jesus, ironically. And he um, is often pontificating and ruminating over these things. He's himself quite old. He's locked into the age of 76 and um, pretty frail. And uh, he he went for age decoding, so he's, his age doesn't get any older. But like he says, I'm at the precipice of death. I'm just staring at him. And I, he really doesn't like that after a while. And, and, uh, and then he's grappling, when they bring out reverse aging where you can get younger, he's grappling with, should I even do that? I mean, should I tinker anymore with my natural flow? And he, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to quote, quote one thing that Jesus says that sort of just just captures this whole thought. Um, I could find it. Um, now Jesus, um, he uh, he talks about um, he, he get, there's a there's a quotation. It's from anonymous, and Jesus says, "The thief to be most wary of is the one who steals your time." He's quoting anonymous there, but then Jesus continues. He says, "With age decoded." I believe it's the opposite. I think the thief to be wary of is the one who lends you too much time. They steal your humanity. And that's what Jesus is grappling with is, you know, living forever? Is that really humanity? Is that being human? Is that right? Um, and uh, there's one other quote, if you don't mind. I, there's, a, there's another character who's Jesus' granddaughter. And uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to have your listeners get a feel for how she is interpreting all this. Uh, she, she has her grandfather, Jesus. Her mother uh, is that scientist that you mentioned, and she's been entrapped by the government and taken away. She thinks her mother killed herself, but actually her mother has been captured and taken for 200 years. Her father left her over that whole event. Um, so she has no father, no mother. The grandfather who's frozen at 77, and this, this character, Zymana, <coughs> is... Um, stuck at 25 years old and she's never going to have children because in this future society of course children are going to be so rare and almost impossible to have so she uh says 
Uh, she's really just speaking to herself and she says, I'm stuck in one egotistical dimension. I'm alone. What's it like to nurture a baby, to bring up a child, to see a walk and talk for the very first time? What's it like to listen to a son or a daughter tell stories about school and friendships and to grow old witnessing them mature into adults, companions and caregivers? What's it like to fully experience the cycle of life with loved ones? I'll never know the joy of being a real mother like women were in the old days. If I did know it, it would come in some artificial way. So there's two characters, one were the old one and one were the young one, who um, are really struggling after 200 years, you know, stuck in this state of not growing older. Yeah. So one thing is that this old man is stuck at 76, which is probably not a great age to be stuck with, to be honest, because you're not as youthful and uh, full of energy. You're just an old man at 76. Uh, you know, with this same capabilities of any 76 year old, but not, but living forever, right? So, you know, the, I guess the thing about that is that you can, yeah, sure, great, you could live forever, but you're going to be stuck in that same situation. But what I think about even with the other character as well is, is, um, so if you're going to live 200, 300 years, are you going to value yourself? Are you going to value your time? I just feel like there's going to be a lot of people who just says, well, I'm going to live for 300 years, so why should I really work hard right now or care about this person or that person? Because over two, 300 years, I could meet so many different people and, you know, I'm just probably not going to really care about the other person anyway. You know, how are we going to be able to really look at time in a way that we do right now? If we can, if we live that long, right? Some people are maybe, maybe very motivated and think, well, I'm going to change the world. You know, people like Elon Musk talk about it, or probably a lot of entrepreneurs. I think they're the, they're the people who are always on the front line saying they want to extend their life and, and vouch for this technology. But, you know, what about the rest of the people who are not that motivated and they can live 200, 300 years? I mean, what, what does that tell us about? Our, our value of time. Yeah, I, I in in my book there is a I bring in the um, uh, condition called immortality ennui. So some people just after a while lose all interest and they um, they end up going to these things called specter societies where they can just uh, commit suicide legally. And uh, so that ennui that's a possibility. But also in my book I have a bit of fun. Some people have like um, seventeen PhDs because, uh, you know, they, they get bored with sort of what their first PhD and they try another one, you know, there's lots of time to do these things, right? So, um, yeah, immortality, it's, um, it's, yeah, I, I don't know, it would be, it's, I don't know how natural it is, uh, and I don't know if I would go for it, um, but I do think, and, you know, I, I wrote the book because, really for the young people out there, I mean, I, I know a lot of my readers are middle-aged or even a little older like me, um, baby boomers whatnot but um i am getting a lot of younger readers who are reading and those are the ones people in their 20s 30s even maybe high teens who might be affected much more by some of this when they're my age uh, a lot is going to happen in the next half a century i would say yeah if we get it 
um, I'm probably going to be like in my 90s or something if it's in 15 years, uh, 50 years. So, you know, for me, there's probably no point of actually getting it because I don't want to be stuck at 90 years forever. And I think a lot of the people, even the younger people, or even if I think about my kids, that they're going to be stuck at 25 forever, right? And, and what I worry about also is that there's no rejuvenation of society either because there's, we're going to be stuck with the same, you know, 8 billion people forever, which is really horrifying because, you know, you need new people into this world, right? Where with new ideas, because even if you're 25, you're probably, you know, 200 years old, you know, in, in, in real time. So that means that, you know, they, their ideas become older and older as well. And there's no fresh things coming out, right? There's no new young people because it's not about the physical looks of who you are, right? It's about having younger people coming into this world with new ideas, new views about life. I mean, even if you look at, you know, you just mentioned about boomers, but you look, you look at the different types of people in each generation. They're so, the mentality is so different because you live through different, different economic backdrops, and, and political backdrops as well, right? You know, I, I look at Zen, Gen Zs or millennials and think, you know, they're very much more, uh, you know, uh, open about it. They're more, ideas are more like inclusive minded than we, than we are in, in Gen Xers and above. And I, I, and that needs to happen over time. If we're stuck with the same 8 billion people, what does that do for humanity? Yeah, that's so well said, Tuck. I really like the way you put that. Um, in, my, in the the character Jesus in my book says something interesting. Again, he's Buddhist. He says the uh, the illusion of permanence, the illusion of permanence is um, going to cause suffering, more suffering than than it'll eliminate. So, um, and uh, in my book, I have this one scene where the um, uh, it's the idea of the different generations, the, the diverse generations and viewpoints and ages and young and old and children and grandchildren and grandparents, all of that is going to be lost as, you know, if, if you have more, no more young people and all the old people start reverse aging, everybody's going to be 25 or 30 years old, like you say, right? So, and then you're going to be stuck with that group pretty much permanently. And um, so my, and I have this one sort of metaphorical scene um, where there's a soccer game going on and there's these, there are a few young people still in, in the society. So this, they're playing this game, the young, the kids are like 12 year olds and uh, adults come in to watch them because there's, it's such a rarity to see children. So they can actually pay to adopt a child and cheer for them for an hour. They pay a pretty good fee for that just so they can feel like they're a parent again. And, um, the children play, and during the game, there's um, the soccer pitch has a uh, on the edge of the soccer pitch. There's a fence line, and on the other side of the fence, there's a graveyard, and it, there's hundreds of old gravestones of of older people who had died. And uh, in that in that scene, there's this sort of interplay between the uh, the the life, the young children who look over and see the stones and they respect those you know, stones because they know what those stones represent which is the older generations who had disappeared and the young people have almost disappeared too so there's sort of this mutual respect from the old and the young during that soccer game with those little peers uh, and glances from the young people towards the old gravestones yeah and i i really think that you know actually seeing death or knowing that you're going to die you're going to try to make your life better, right? Because you know there's a your life is finite. It's not infinite. So you know that if you want to make some kind of difference or some value 
purpose in your life, you make that try to make that happen. And if you think you're going to live for 200, 300 years, you know, push that back, right? I mean, or, or why, why even care if it's, or even if it, if it, and more so if it's infinite. And so, so I kind of feel like, you know, we just could be stuck with people who are just, you know, jellyfishing through life thinking, yeah, you know, and it's, it's going to go on forever. So why make an impact right now? Who cares? And that's, that's kind of the moral, uh, concern I have probably, probably at the top of the list because, because we don't, if we don't value our time, if you don't value our life, you know, you're not going to do anything about it. Right. And that's, and that's from a point of view that it, we are a generation that knows that life is going to end at some point. But if you're starting out with kids right now and then stop them at a certain age and not having them really understand the concept of death and having them live forever is also extremely different, uh, dangerous as well. I don't think I would have written the book if I knew I would live till I was a thousand or something. Uh, <laughs> and actually, I don't think a lot of artists would produce their art um, because um, whether it's a book or a or a piece of music or uh, an artistic piece uh, behind here. This is something my wife drew. That That's going to live after her. That's a legacy. And she's so motivated to do that because she knows she's her life is finite. But those things we pass on again to other generations through our, our, your legacy, your art, is, um, is precious. And I don't think people would be as motivated uh, as artists even to... Um, Think of think of life as being an art. You're creating a, a you're trying to create a, a, a masterpiece or a piece. That's your life, right? And uh, yeah, I just don't think they'd be as motivated. But um, yeah, I, I more or less agree with you on that. Uh, I, I, although I try not to be too negative, and I try not to like the, the the novel I wrote is a little dystopian, as you know. But it you know it ends not so badly. You know, it's got some nice things happen in the end. Uh, but um, yeah, I think we need to be very cautious uh, about the new of the power of uh, genetic engineering. <clears throat> but on the flip side, let's say that there is a uh, a good value of living for forever. I mean, what kind of things can you think of? Because obviously, there's a, there are many people on the other side thinking that yes, aging is actually a flaw, is a genetic flaw, or it's a disease, and we should be living. Uh, much longer, much younger as well. So what do you think are the benefits of that? Yeah, well, a lot of diseases are, are related to old age. So if you think of old age as disease, there's a whole concoction of other things that go with it, like cancer and Alzheimer's, and they seem to be genetically related. So if you could eliminate aging, and there's a lot of research going on in, uh, right now in Japan, Europe, and the United States, uh, for sure, uh, on, on this, uh, and even try to reverse it, you would you would eliminate a lot of other conditions associated, and you know, bring back, you would bring, you would definitely eliminate a lot of ailments. Um, so that's good, and I, I think that's that's nice. Yeah, I see this in uh, a lot of aging societies. Well, I guess. If you if you take a step back and think about okay in in two thousand uh, and after World War Two there's been a generation that has been completely wiped out right not completely but a lot of people have died and what what happened during those times after that is that you have less people who are older and you have this baby boomers who are, who are you know po as a population much bigger and they start from 
scratch basically especially like in countries like japan or or europe where it's been devastated and they they start to generate like new ideas new business new industries etc and you have this like powerful economic force that's rising right but now if you look at you know countries as the ones that i just mentioned is that you have this massive drag of really i guess older the, the baby boomer generation that are retired and basically and just saying no no offense to any 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 people in this generation but you know they they are sucking up a lot of social security uh costs and and even with the families that have uh you know their grandparents and etc are you know a a massive weight on the economic uh viability of the country itself so if if people actually live longer like that then everybody is going to be basically what i'm trying to say is like the if you live that long how long can you con- continue being economically active as a human being right because you have these generations that are young you know willing to do things willing to you know or maybe they have desires or material desires or whatever it is that they uh strive to to make more money and keep the economy active so that they can support their families younger families but if you could live as long as you want wouldn't that cause a economic disaster because nobody really cares to you know create economic activity yeah and i think if uh, let's say this uh, let's say in 20, let's say the baby boomers now are 60 to 65 years old and um, let's say in 20 years you could stop aging now that that's probably not going to happen i would say it's more like 50 to 100 years but anyway let's say in 20 years they could stop aging now, like you say, that demographic, uh, that demographic uh, huge section uh, of, of, of people, 60, 65, now they're 80, and then you lock them in at 80, the um, healthcare um, system would have, would, would have a huge strain on it, I think. And like you say, would they be able to economically contribute? Sort of like my character, you know, Jesus, who was locked in at 78 and didn't really much enjoy it, uh, get much out of that. Um, so, yeah, it depends on demographics. It depends on timing. Um, but then again, if you can reverse aging, then uh, maybe we could solve all of that, all of that with, with uh, going a little one step further, reversing. I mean, there's, there's research going on right now on reversing aging. It's fascinating. Um, uh, the one David Sinclair from... Harvard University, uh, Stephen Horbath from UC, from uh, UC uh, um, LA, and also um, Shinya, Yama, Shinya Yamanaka from uh, uh, Kyoto University. Um, they've all found ways, not in humans yet, but except for Yamanaka, I think he did use humans, uh, to stop and even reverse the biological clock. That's interesting, because when I watch, this is kind of trivial, but when I watched this movie called uh, Benjamin Button, I thought how how wonderful it would be if I could just start out as a baby, get old, and then go right back to being a baby again, and kind of use that life experience when in the first version of your life, and then redo it better as you actually uh, age younger, you know, and and uh, that would be a really interesting life to have, actually, which I wouldn't mind, you know, getting a, a CRISPR done on me to you know, do it all over again. But, you know, I, I personally do want to 
I don't want to say I want to die, but like I just want to know that you know there there is a end to my life, so I just want to make it as as good as possible, right? And I, I'm kind of the in a, in kind of the belief that you know this body is just a vessel, right? I mean, you can to me, I feel like you can live forever, and maybe not in this body, but maybe in some types of forms uh, later on in life. And you know, it's just this is my just journey in this vessel at the moment, but you know, it may be sometime in the future or even the past, maybe I can relive a different life. And it's kind of you know, maybe up to I don't know, uh, uh, maybe up to me at that point, what kind of life that I want to enjoy. So I don't, I don't particularly feel like I need to live in this body, particularly forever. Well, thank you very much for your conversation. It was really wonderful. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed reading your book, Age Decoded. I wish a lot of people out there would try to read this book and kind of think about, you know, what are the ethical values of having a finite life. This is something that I really want to extend uh, the topics and talk about it a lot more in the future. But uh, thank, but Mark, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Taka, for having me on your show, uh, Future Design. I, I really enjoyed it, and uh, all the best uh, continuing forward. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. If you had enjoyed or disliked the show, please let me know in the comment section. I can only improve or add value to you through your voices. If there are any topics that you'd like me to pick up, please let me know in the comment section as well. I'd love to start chatting with you. And if you'd like to continue listening to the show, please subscribe. Thank you.